The Wiz Kids had won it, Bobby Thompson had done it, and Yogi read the comics all the while. Rock and roll was being born, marijuana we would scorn. So down on the corner, the national pastime went on trial. We're talking baseball, Klazuski, Campanella, talking baseball. The man and Bobby Feller, the scooter, the barber, and the nuke. They knew them all from Boston to Dubuque, especially Willie, Mickey, and the Duke. All right, everybody. Welcome on back to Baseball History 101. As always, I am Patrick DeVault. I am joined by my esteemed colleague, Matthew Carter. Uh, today, we're going to cover um, Jolton Joe, the Yankee Clipper, Joe D. Uh, Joe DiMaggio. Yep. Um, he was a center fielder. He played his entire 13-year career, which you would think he had more of a career with the uh, legacy that he has behind him. Um, but he was center fielder for the New York Yankees. He was born to Sicilian immigrants in California and is widely considered one of the greatest ballplayers of all time and is known for setting the longest hitting streak in baseball. Mm-hmm. 56 games. It uh, spanned from May 15, 1941 to July 16, 1941. And it still is the longest. So we're coming up on, what, we're over 80 years. Yeah, 81 years. Ain't, nobody's going to catch up with that. Um, and uh, me and Sonia were in Louisville few months ago um and we uh went to the Louisville Slayer Museum and they had Joe DiMaggio about it and he was like yeah he sent this one back to us he said it was one sixteenth inch too thick wow. like they have <laughs> records of that like I ordered this bat it's one sixteenth inch too thick it doesn't feel right in my hands one sixteenth inch too thick yeah wow wow <laughs> but um that, that that's the kind of guy he was though, man. You know, and what? Um, let's see. We can run down the list. He was a thirteen-time All Star, nineteen thirty-six to nineteen forty-two consecutively, and then forty-six to fifty-one consecutively. Nine-time World Series champion, thirty-six, thirty-seven, Three-time MLP in 39, 41, 47. Two-times batting champion in 39, 40. Two-time home run leader in the American League, 37, 48. Two-time American League RBI leader, 41, 48. And, of course, we mentioned the history already, but uh, his number five is retired with the Yankees, and he's in Monument Park, and he is also on the MLB All-Century team. Mm-hmm. Oh, but, um, yeah, he was a 1955 inductee of the Hall of Fame. Yep. 88.84%, and that was on his third ballot. <laughs> you think he'd be first ballot. Right. Yeah. But, um, you know, so he was born on November 25th, 1914, which this year was Black Friday. And in Martinez, California, which was part of the, it's part of the Bay Area, around that area. And his parents were Giuseppe and Rosalia DiMaggio, and they were from the, they were from Sicily, you know, the big island that's at the bottom tip of the peninsula of Italy. And his, the Joe DiMaggio's birth, given name of birth was Giuseppe Paolo DiMaggio. And, you know, Rosalia named him Giuseppe in the hope that he would be the DiMaggio's last child, 
which he wasn't because he was the eighth of nine children. And his father, Giuseppe, named, he gave him the middle name Paulo because it was his favorite saint, St. Paul. Now, Giuseppe was a fisherman. That was his trade. Even in the Bay Area as well as in, in Sicily, he was a fisherman. And that's what the DiMaggio family did for generations. They, just, they were fishermen. That's what they did. That was their bread and butter. And young Joe did not like doing that. He recalled, you know, that he would do anything to get out of cleaning his father's boat as a child because the smell of dead fish nauseated him. It was very nauseating. And I can imagine that. Hey, I, I can say, yeah, I can imagine that. You know, it's not a pleasant smell to deal with, you know. And his father just was not thrilled with this. And he called Joe, you know, lazy and good for nothing. And at the age of 10, this is where Joe starts you know, baseball, his love for baseball. He took up the game of baseball at age 10 in the neighborhood of Sandlots and Martinez, I think. Well, actually, they lived in San Francisco at that time. They lived in San Francisco by then. So we were on Sandlots of San Francisco playing third base at the North Beach Playground near their home nearby Fisherman's War. So again, these are like, you know, San Francisco neighborhoods, you know. And he completed his schooling, you know, in Hancock Elementary and Francisco Junior High. But Joe did not finish high school, and he didn't finish at high school at Galileo High School. And he decided to, I guess, drop out to go work on jobs, including hawking newspapers, stacking boxes at a warehouse, and working at an orange juice plant. And then in 31, when he was 16, 17, he began playing semi-pro ball. And at the end of the 1932 season, his older brother Vince, who we've mentioned in the Brothers podcast, all his other, his younger brother Dom, he was playing for the San Francisco Seals in the Pacific Coast League, which was the local minor league team. And there and the Seals were a legendary minor league team in history. So he talked so Vince talked to the manager of the Seals into letting Joe fill in at shortstop. Yeah, that's really cool for your probably to fill in, man. And yeah. This hey, I vouch for this guy. He could play for us. Yeah. And that like made his debut in October of thirty two, October first, and played the last three games of the season. And then two years from that, he made a jump from the playground games to the PCL, one notch below the show. Mm-hmm. Um, and his full rookie year from May 27th to July 25th, 33, he hit safely in 61 games consecutive, a PCL record, which is foreshadowing to what he was going to do in the major leagues. Yeah. It's 61. <laughs> and... Um... He said on this, baseball didn't really get into my blood until I knocked off that hitting streak, referring to the 61-game hitting streak. Getting a daily hit became more important to me than eating, drinking, or sleeping. Dude, as a guy that played ball, and this, is gonna, this is probably going to be the first summer I hadn't played ball since I met you, Matt. Yeah. I get it. Yeah. Like, absolutely. <laughs> you know, and of course, you know, in 34, he suffered a, a potentially career-threatening knee injury when he tore ligaments in his knee while stepping out of a jitney. And for people who don't know what a jitney is, it's, 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 it's kind of like a taxi. It's basically a taxi. You know, it's a it's a slang term, American slang term for a taxi. Yeah, it's like a bus taxi kind of deal. Yeah, and of course, this was like the beginning of a history of injuries for DiMaggio, which, as we'll get to, this is probably a reason why he only played other than other than the war, is probably the only reason why he played, you know, like fourteen seasons or whatever it was, you know. But luckily, it healed, you know. 
And the scout, a scout for the New York Yankees, Bill Essick, convinced, you know, he, he was convinced that DiMaggio's injury would heal. And he pestered the Yankees to give DiMaggio another look. So apparently, I guess, the first look, the Yankees weren't that impressed. But then Bill Essex's like, dude, no. Give this you guy have to have look. this guy. we got to have him. He's great. And so yeah, after, so he passed a physical and got 50 grand. Yep. And, and 50 grand then, y'all can do the conference, y'all can do the comp. The um, what is it? The conversion from thirty-four to now. Yeah. Of what fifty ground is, but yeah, and just and just uh, <laughs> you know, and but he re- even though he the Yankees purchased him, he still remained with the seals of thirty-five. And he batted three ninety-eight with one hundred fifty-four RBIs and thirty-four home runs, and he led helped lead the seals to the PCL title that year. He was named League MVP. Now, there's one person when he was with the seals at least in 34, 35, whatever it was, that had a big influence on him, and it was Lefty O'Doul, who was a former Major League player. He started his career in the Major Leagues as a pitcher, and he became a better hitter. And he, this guy had a really big influence on Joe DiMaggio, loves hitting and how to play baseball, and those two were lifelong friends to Lefty's death. You know, like when – like this was funny. Like when when Joe DiMaggio married Marilyn Monroe in 54 – they did their honeymoon like in Japan and, and Korea to like, you know, they went for the honeymoon as well as like teach baseball and Lefty O'Doul and his wife were part of that honeymoon. So it's like we're on a honeymoon, but we're also um, going to write this off as a, we need somebody to pay for this honeymoon kind of deal. Yeah. And so like, and there's like, you can find pictures online of like, you know. It's like a modern day tax write off kind of? Maybe. I, I would say so. And like, you can find pictures of, you know, during that honeymoon with, like, Lefty, like, in between Joe and, and, and Marilyn with his arms around both of them just talking, you know. <laughs> it, was, it was interesting. But, yeah, I just wanted to bring that up there because that, that was a big influence. Lefty O'Doul was a big influence on Joe's baseball career. And so now, after 35, he, he joins the Yankees in 36. Yep. He made his Major League debut on May 3rd, 1936, um, batting right in front of Lou Gehrig. Can you imagine making your debut batting right in front of you here? That's unfathomable. <laughs> um, they had, hadn't been in the World, World Series since 32, but they uh, won the next four. Over the course of his 13-year career, DiMaggio led the Yankees to nine World Series championships. Mm-hmm. The only person he trusts in that category is Yogi Berra. Yogi Berra, yeah. The great Yogi. <laughs> I love Yogi's insights too. We should we could do a whole episode on Yogi's Yogiisms. Yeah, there's a whole bunch. But uh, he set a franchise record for rookies in '36, 29 home runs, and that's only in 138 games. Wow! Remember that was before the expanded uh, 162 game season and all that. Right. So, Mitch um, record stood for 80 years until Aaron Judge just crushed him. Which remember, expanded season. Yep. And that was in 2017. 52 home runs. And, of course, this year... He might not be an Yankee next year. Who knows? Yeah. And, of course, this year, Aaron Judge had 62 home runs. He bested that pretty bad. They're pretty good. (laughs) Yeah. He might not be an Yankee next year. Who knows? Depends who opens up that pocketbook. I think I read somewhere that, like, the Giants were trying to use, like, Chris Paul. No, not Chris Paul. Steph Steph Curry to try to convince Aaron Judge to come to sign with the Giants. You know? (laughs) (laughs) 
Isn't that crazy? That's a cool thing I really love about Aaron Judge. His first year and a half in the major leagues, um, he's lived in a rental home. Yeah. Because he didn't want to buy anything because he thought any day he'd be sent to the minors. And the fact he's that humble, that says something about Aaron Judge. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, back back to DiMaggio. Um, and 37, he built upon his rookie season with 46 homers, 151 runs scored, 418 total bases. He had safely in 43 of 44 games from uh, June 27th to August 12th, and he finished second in the AL MVP voting. In a close rate with close rate. Charlie Geringer of the Detroit Tigers. Which, uh, Charlie Geringer of the Detroit Tigers, um, he was a career 320 hitter. Almost 3,000 hits, 2839, 184 home runs, 1427 RBIs. He was also a six-time All-Star World Series championship. And he was inducted in 1949 of the Baseball Hall of Fame. Yep, and he spent his whole career with the Tigers. So, I love his full career. Hall of Fame guys. Yeah. Um, in 39, DiMaggio was nicknamed the Yankee Clipper by the play-by-play announcers Arch McDonald when he likened DiMaggio's speed and range in the outfield to the then-new Pan American out- airliner. Mm-hmm. So we're getting bulk air travel going here, and we're comparing this guy to, yeah, you know, calling somebody a gazelle across the outfield, you know, that kind of stuff. Right. <laughs> Um, that year in August, he recorded uh, 53 RBIs, tying Hack Wilson, um, his record, also a 1979 member of the Hall of Fame, his 1930 record for uh, the most in a single month, and he also won his first career batting title and MVP award, and he also led the Yankees to his fourth consecutive World Series championship. Yeah. And then he was on Sport Magazine. Which that's not a magazine I'm familiar with because his first issue was in '46 and his final issue was in 2000. So I'm vaguely familiar. I've seen old covers of right, but yeah. growing up in the '90s, like we were 10 years old when they last August, you know. Right, we cared about Sports Illustrated for kids back then. Yeah, but not Sport Magazine. Right, yeah. But then in '47, DiMaggio won his third MVP award, and that was his sixth World Series and his sixth World Series for the Yankees. And that year, um, Tom Yawkey. Of Yawkey Way, which has kind of been canceled, I believe. Yeah, a little on the backside, which I don't just I don't agree with cancel culture, but I don't know the details on that. Tom Yawkey, Boston Red Sox owner of Yawkey Way, and all that, and uh, Yankees GM Larry McPhail, who we talked about previously on this podcast. Yep, they agreed to trade DiMaggio for Ted Williams, but there was a kicker on that trade, Yogi Berra, and the Yankees wanted to keep Yogi Berra, which I think. (laughs) Was the right play for the Yankees? Yeah, I would say so. Yeah, I'll hand it over here, right here, man. In '49, uh, Sport Magazine, Greenberg. Greenberg, yeah. Yeah. DiMaggio covered so much ground in center field that the only way to get a hit against the Yankees was to hit him where Joe wasn't. <laughs> and he stole home five times. Yeah, like that's a big deal. That's a big deal. Yeah. Um, I guess in uh, on fe- in February of 1949, February 7th, yeah, he signed a contract worth 100 grand, which in current dollars would be 1.14 million, mm-hmm. plus 70,000 in bonus. And he became the first player in baseball to make 100,000 dollars in earnings. And then by 1950, he was ranked second best center fielder by Sporting News, which that doesn't exist anymore, does it, Matt? 
It exists online only. It doesn't exist in print form. So I got some cool print form Maguire Sosa stuff from that home run race. Yeah. Um, after Larry Doby, he was the uh, also a guy that made some big money. Mm-hmm. They had bad 51 season injuries and Brooklyn Dodgers scouting report. And it was turned over to the Giants, linked the press. He announced his retirement at 37, man. He just, his body broke down on him. Yeah. And, you know, he made the announcement, as he said, for his retirement. I feel like I have reached the stage where I can no longer produce for my club, my manager, and my teammates. I had a full year, but even if I hit, even if I had hit three fifty, this would have been my last year. I was full of aches and pains, and it had become a chore for me to play. When baseball is no longer fun, it is no longer a game, and so I played my last game. That's exactly my viewpoint on my damn men's league, you know. Yeah, I mean, you you hate to see, you hate to leave it, but at the same time, you gotta know when you gotta go. And you rather have you make that decision than somebody else make that decision. Mm -hmm. And what's really cool about him is uh, through 2009, he was tied with McGuire, third place all times in home room. Um, over the first two calendar years in the major league, which was 77. Just behind two guys, Phillies Hall of Famer Chuck Klein and Brewers Ryan Braun. Ooh, and then... Um, we talked about it in the previous episode. No, <laughs> yeah, not for the right reasons, though. Right, yeah. We hadn't talked about Chuck Klein. That might be a guy we bring up. Later on, you, I'm sure you'll hear about all these guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was one of seven major leaguers through 2011 to have at least 430 homer, 100 RBI seasons in their first five years. Once again, uh, Chuck Klein, Ted Williams, Ralph Kiner, Mark Teixeira, that's a good name. Mm-hmm. Pujols, he'll get an episode here soon. Uh, Ryan Braun, again. Yeah. Um, Dimaggio, he has the records for seasons with more home runs than strikeouts. Minimum 20 home runs. I feel like him and Tony Gwynn would probably be pretty close in that category. Yeah. And he accomplished that feat seven times. And five times consecutively from 37 to 41. And, of course, you know, like most ball players during the 40s, he served in World War II. And because of that, he, you know, his stats are what they are. But if he didn't have to serve, if we didn't have World War II going on, he didn't have to serve in World War II. He could have exceeded 500 home runs and 2,000 RBIs. But again, this is all what if material. Mm-hmm. You know, what if World War II did? Well, what if the U.S. didn't join World War II? You know. But you know what? Yeah, he I missed mean, three seasons. Yeah, three seasons. I mean, so did Ted Williams, so did a whole bunch of other people. And his power number suffered because uh, Yankee Stadium was built as the house that Ruth, house that Ruth built, and it favored. Um, Left-handed hitting. Yeah, he was a right-handed hitter. So, they built it to favor of Babe Ruth, but he hit the ball the short, the other way, you know. Babe Ruth was able to bury it behind the monuments that used to be on the playing field. Yep. (laughs) This is wild. It's kind of cool. It's cool. I mean, that's something you just don't see. Um, You know, like, Mickey Mantle and Whitey Ford said they that he hit shots that would have been home runs anywhere other than Yankee Stadium. So that kind of hindered his long term full career numbers. Yeah, granted he didn't play 
Now those guys playing baseball now they've been playing way longer than he did. Right. And in that time, guys played what 15, 20 years. So Bill James, the the saber, the, the father of saber metrics, uh, he calculated that Joe DiMaggio lost more home runs due to his home park than any other park other player in history. Left center field in Yankee Stadium went as far back as 457 feet, which we're talking about like home field territory. You know, because originally Yankee Stadium, as we mentioned, had very deep outfields. And this is like before that they... Center field at Truist Park in Atlanta right now, I think it's been renamed. It's uh, 406. Yeah, 406. Like, the yeah. dead center. Yeah, that's, that's pittance compared to, you know, originally Yankee Stadium. Or even the polo grounds or force field or even original Rickwood field, the, the original offensive Rickwood field. You know, I mean, it, it's nothing, you know. But, um, you know, and of course, you know, there was um, in the 47 World Series, Brooklyn Dodgers outfielder Aljean Frito, you know, robbed Joe DiMaggio of a home run. And like, you know, it was in left center, which was like about 415 feet. And it would have been a home run in the new Yankee Stadium. But it would not have been, it wasn't a home run in the old Yankee Stadium. And of course, if you watch footage of the 47 series, when Jean Frito made that catch, you know, Joe DiMaggio was rounding second. Well, it was rounding first, heading to second. And he noticed that Jean Frito caught the ball. He just kicks dirt, you know, just kicks the dirt as a man. Uh, Dang the small part, man. Come on, you know, and then just walks back to the dugout because that was the last out of the inning, you know. But, uh, so DiMaggio, so this is his career stats, home and away. DiMaggio hit 148 home runs and 3,368 bats at home at Yankee Stadium versus 213 home runs and 3,461 at bats on the road. You know, so obviously, Yankee Stadium was playing against him because, you know, he wasn't Ruth or Garrett who hit left-handed and just used that 296 feet down the right field line to their advantage, <laughs> you know. And, um, you know, and his slugging percentage at home was 546, and on the road it was at 610. And Bill James said on the figures, you know, Every time he batted in his home field during his entire career, he did so knowing that it was physically impossible for him to hit a home run to half of the field directly in front of him. Unless he had to leg it out. You yeah. Know? And, you know, with his injuries, it kind of hampered him from actually really running. You know. That's before we had trainers in the locker room massaging your damn quads every night. You right. Know? You, know, you know, they didn't have actual good trainers, you know. And it's just, you know. If you look at a baseball field from foul line to foul line, it has a 90-degree radius from the power alley in left center field to the fence in deep right field. It is 45 degrees. And Joe DiMaggio never hit a single home run over the fences at Yankee Stadium in that 45-degree graveyard from left center field to right center field. It was just too far. Joe was plenty strong. He routinely hit balls in the 425-foot range. But that just wasn't good enough in the Cavaliers' Yankee Stadium. You know, like Ruth, he benefited from a few easy homers each season due to the short foul on distances, like like I said, 296 to right field at the time, which they grandfathered in, you know, until they renovated the old Yankee Stadium in the 70s. You know, but he lost 
He lost many more than he gained by constantly hitting long fly outs towards center field. Whereas most sluggers performed better on their home field, DiMaggio hit only 41% of his career home runs in the Bronx. Like I said, 148 home runs in the stadium. If he had hit the same exact pattern of batted balls with a typical modern stadium as his home, he would have belted out 225 home runs during his home home field career. You know. But it's just, you know. Yeah, it is what it is, man. But he's most known for his 41 hitting streak. Yeah, absolutely. It's the most, according to a guy named uh, Stephen J. Gould, his DiMaggio streak is the most extraordinary thing that has ever happened in American sports. That's a quote. Yeah. Um, His most famous achievement is his MLB record-breaking 56-game hitting streak in 41. It began on May 15th, a couple weeks before the death of Lou Gehrig who had been DiMaggio's teammate from 36 to 39. When he went one for four against Chicago White Sox pitcher Eddie Smith, um, who was also a couple-time All-Star, played for the Philadelphia Athletics, who we've covered before, the Chicago White Sox, the Boston Red Sox. Um, but major newspapers began to write about DiMaggio's streak early on, but as he approached George Sisler's modern-era record of 41 games, it became a national phenomenon. So I'm assuming that's kind of like the way it was with us McMire and Sosa in the mid-90s watching the home run race, you know? Yeah, I would say so, yes. Um, initially, DiMaggio showed little interest in breaking this record, saying, I'm not thinking a whole lot about it. I'll either break it or I won't. I'm just here to hit baseball, pretty much what he's saying there. But, that, yeah. you know, um, but as he approached this as record, he showed more interest, saying, at the start, I didn't think much about it, but naturally, I'd like to get the record so I'm this close, which I guess has human nature. Mm-hmm. I'm as close to breaking a record and establishing myself as an icon of baseball history. Yeah. Personally, like, every bad I'm thinking about that record once mm-hmm. I get to that point. Because yeah. I'm, I'm going to be greedy once I get to that point where I'm close to it. Mm-hmm. Personally. I don't know about y'all, but. Yeah, I'd be the same way. But on June 29th of 41, he doubled in the first game of a doubleheader against the Washington Centers at Griffith Stadium to tie the record, and then singled in the nightcap with a doubleheader to extend the streak to 42. Yep. A Yankee Stadium crowd of 52,832 fans watched him tie the all-time hitting streak of 44 games with Wee Willie Keeler. Wee, Wee Henry Keeler, also a Hall of Famer um, that was inducted in 39 with 75.5% of the ballot. On July 1st of that same season. And the next thing is the Boston Red Sox. See how the Yankee stands left field stands to extend to 45, setting the new record. He recorded 67 hits in 179 at bats during the first 45 games of the streak. Talk about being hot. Red hot. Blue hot. Blue. Like propane, yeah. blue, hot, hot, fire hot, man. Yeah. Like, propane, blue hot, yeah. Um,. And Killer had only recorded 88 in his 2-1. So, they're on the same pace there. But they continued hitting after breaking Killer's record, reaching 50 straight games July 11th against the St. Louis Browns at Cleveland's Municipal Stadium. And a streak finally snapped at 56, thanks in part to two backhand stops by Indian third baseman's Ken Keltner. He was also a seven-time All-Star between 40 and 44, 46 and 48. He was a World Series champion for Cleveland in 48. And he's in the Cleveland Indians Hall of Fame. Yep. 
technically Guardians Hall of Fame, but right, but we, we get it, you know. So during the streak, DiMaggio bat four oh eight with fifteen home runs and fifty five RBI. It is the best part. The day after the streak ended, DiMaggio started another hitting streak that lasted sixteen games. So therefore he hit safely in seventy two out of seventy three games. And of course, so impressive. Yeah, the closest to anybody coming close to that was Pete Rose in nineteen seventy eight when he hit forty four straight games. You know. And um I remember I think my, my great uncle Julius, my dad's uncle, I think he witnessed one of he went to a Reds game in seventy eight and saw one of Pete Rose's games that he hit forty four straight. Like I remember like, you know, ten years ago or so I emailed him about I emailed him uh, great uncle Julius about certain things and he just mentioned that. Yeah, about so I'm assuming Grant Cordillas is a big baseball guy, too. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he was, you know. But, um, yeah, that's a little personal. And, of course, you know, the Yankees' record during the streak was 41 wins, 13 losses, and two ties. So, you know. And it's just, you know, some people, and I think both Patrick and I would be agreeing to this, some people consider uh, DiMaggio Street as uniquely outstanding and unbreakable record and a statistical near impossibility. You know. Dude, you got to be a certain level of hot to do that. Right. And uh, like I asked Matthew about earlier, probably 10 minutes ago, there used to be a thing MLB put on on their website. You could download the app, beat the streak, and if you could beat his streak and pick a different hitter every night, you couldn't pick the same hitter twice yeah. in your 62-game streak or what is it, 56-game streak? 56-game streak, yeah. 56-game streak. You couldn't pick the same hitter twice. But if you picked a hitter every night, you would build a streak. And if you beat the streak, it was worth a million dollars. Yeah. And I think one guy finally did it. I am not sure about it, but I believe somebody finally did it. He won that $56,000. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so... Nobel Prize-winning physicist and sabermetrician Edward Mills Purcell calculated that to have the likelihood of a hitting streak of 50 games occurring in the history of baseball up to the late 80s be greater than 50%, 52. Oh, I get, yeah, the likelihood, that's a weird stat. Like 350, yeah. Yeah, skip this part. This, this isn't good. I'm sorry, man. That was weird to weird. All right, so it comes to a point where um, Joe DiMaggio enlists in the United States Army Air Forces on February 17, 1943, and he rose to the rank of sergeant. He was stationed at Santa Ana, California, Hawaii, and Atlantic City, New Jersey, as a PE instructor. He was released on a medical discharge in September of 1945 due to chronic stomach ulcers. He is paid 21 a month. Other than being paid $21 a month, um, his service was as comfortable as a soldier's life could be. He spent most of his military career playing for baseball teams and in exhibition games against fellow major leaguers and minor league players. And supervised gave him special privileges to his pre-war fame. He ate so well from an Athlete-only diet said he gained 10 pounds, and while in Hawaii, had other players mostly tanned on the – he and other players mostly tanned on the beach and drank. Embarrassed by his lifestyle, he requested that they be given a combat assignment, but they wouldn't give it to him. Yeah, he just – he 
you know, he just they didn't want they didn't want to. I think the U.S. government didn't want to risk him. You know, I mean, you compare that to other people like Warren Spahn. You know, he was in the Battle of the Bulge, which was a big battle in World War Two. And Ted Williams, even though he didn't, even though he stayed stateside, he, Ted Williams learned how to fly fighter pilots, you know, fighter uh, planes. Joe DiMaggio basically just played baseball during the war. Who was it was stationed on the USS Alabama? Bob Feller was stationed Feller. on the Bob USS Feller. Alabama. Yeah, in the Navy. They still have his bunk as it is if you go down there to uh, Mobile and see it. Yeah. I mean, it's just... And, you know, in, in later on, it's like, you know, he'd rather... I If you ask Joe DiMaggio, he would rather be fighting in the war instead of staying... He asked to, and they said, "No, nah, man." They said, "No, we're not going. We're not going. We're not." Because you're an American uh, icon. Yeah, and they probably said the same thing to Ted Williams, and, but Ted Williams just got to do stuff. We got to learn how to fly planes, you know, and which helped him out in the Korean War later on. But you know, and then, you know, as as we all know, in World War II, the U.S. and Britain and the Soviet Union were fighting not only Germany and Japan, but also Italy. Right, fascist Italy, you know, Benito Mussolini. And of course, as we previously stated, Joe's parents were Italian immigrants. He is the son of Italian immigrants. Yeah, and they were known as enemy aliens. Right. Which, which is bullshit. Yeah. And, you know, and of course, you know, you think of, and of course, you think of, the Japanese internment camps in, in the U.S. and California during that time frame because they were viewed as enemy aliens. You know, even well, even if you weren't Japanese, you could be like Chinese, like George, like George Takei and his family. They were in a Japanese internment camp, even though his family wasn't Japanese. You know, but the thing is, like, they didn't put the Italians in internment camps like the, Jap- like the Japanese Americans. They were, each person, like, if you were if you were identified as an enemy alien, they were they were required to carry photo ID booklets at all times, and were not allowed to travel outside a five mile radius from their home without a permit. So I drive twenty one. I drive uh, about twenty miles to work every day. Like yeah. that's bullshit. Yeah, and so Joe's dad Giuseppe was barred from the San, was barred from San Francisco Bay where he had fished for decades, and his boat was seized. And. But this, and you know, this embarrassed Joe, and he, you know, harbored deep resentment, you know, because of that until his death, because the way the the U.S. government treated his parents. But this also led to Rosalie, sorry, Rosalia and Giuseppe becoming American citizens, like you know, like becoming naturalized American citizens, but after the war. Yeah, um, his mom got citizenship in '45, and uh, his dad got it in '46. Yeah, and it was an embarrassment. You know, because and Giuseppe didn't, from what I, from what Joe has talked about him in the past, Giuseppe didn't know a lot of English. He wasn't good with English. He spoke broken English, and probably Rosalia too. And so, you know, it's, it, Joe was kind of embarrassed by the fact that his dad didn't really learn English as well as him and his brothers. And just, it didn't help his case being targeted, labeled as an enemy alien. Right. Even though Giuseppe you know, as far as I know, didn't support the fascist regime in Italy. You know, well, Sonia's dad, um, she, he, um, came over here from Spain to go to college. Yeah, he still has an accent, but he has mastered the language. But you can very much tell, you know. And back in those time periods, that shit wasn't cool. Right. 
It wasn't accepted. It was not. It wasn't good. Yeah, you, know, you were viewed as un-American, I guess. Yeah. And it's it's kind of, that's an embarrassment on that's an embarrassment in the history of the United States with doing that and the internment camps and whatnot. But anyway, so I guess the next leg is getting into his celebrity status. Yeah. <laughs> um, his first wife, Dorothy Arnold, nineteen thirty-seven. He met her on the set of Manhattan Merry Go Round, in which he had played a minor role, and um, she was an extra. And he announced their engagement. On April twenty fifth, thirty nine, just before the Yankees were to meet the Philly A's, which the Yankees won that game eight to four, belting out thirteen hits, including three by DiMaggio, and the only two hit performance of that year by the Elling Lou Gehrig. They married at San Francisco Saints Peter and Paul Church on November nineteen thirty nine, as twenty thousand well wishers jammed the streets. So he had celebrity stats at this point. Yeah, and their son. Um, Joe Paul DiMaggio Jr., who lived from 41 to 1999, was born at Doctors Hospital in Staten Island. The couple divorced in 44 while he was on leave from the Yankees during World War II. And And then, um, what do you got about that? So, this is crazy. they, They had a wedding cake, obviously. And some guest had like saved a piece of this wedding cake and put like a you know like foil around it and all that stuff and kept this like in their fridge or something for many years until they somebody I guess they discovered it or something. I think it's this yeah, I think this was it because I think or maybe I think somebody else, but like Charlie like they put it up for auction, this this piece of their wedding cake. And Charlie Sheen of all people bought it. Of course he did. I remember reading that. You know, was it when like, he was all coked out, trying to yeah, be he, he trying was, to be uh, Red Tiger Charlie Sheen. Yeah, and after like eight and out in Major League, he was big into buying baseball memorabilia. I remember reading that like in a Sports Illustrated for Kids little booklet about like weird sports facts or something. I know it's a big thing for people to save their wedding cake for the next year and then have one more bite of it, but. But that was just bizarre. It's like why would you even like just either eat it or throw it away? I mean, and then. Charlie Sheen spends thousands of dollars on this piece of Joe DiMaggio's first marriage's wedding cake, you know? <laughs> Just bizarre, man. But, he, but, but but you know, Charlie Sheen's a bizarre guy. He's always winning. He's always on Tiger's blood. He's doing his thing, you know? Hey, don't hate the player, hate the game. Exactly. All right, I'm sorry. Let's go to Maryland. All right. Um, and then Marilyn Monroe, according to her biography, My Story, which was ghostwritten by a guy named Ben Hick. Um, she originally didn't want to meet the Joe, because he was a stereotypically arrogant athlete, which I can I can feel because I was kind of that guy at a certain point in life. Yeah. But um, they eloped at San Francisco City Hall on January fourteenth, fifty four. Even though she was dealing with endometriosis, her and uh, DiMaggio each expressed rep- to the reporters their desire to start a family. But their reunion was. Troubled from the get-go because DiMaggio's jealousy and being the I-want-to-control-everything attitude, um, he apparently was abusive. And a violent fight between them occurred immediately after the skirt-blowing scene in that seven-year-age. You know, the one where he walks over the manhole and the skirt blows up. Mm-hmm. Like, that's the ideal Marilyn Monroe scene. That's what 
she's known for, you know? Yeah. You know? Um, that was in 1954 in front of Manhattan's Translux 52nd Street Theater. And um, he wasn't a fan of that. And after returning from New York City to Hollywood, they filed for divorce because they had a yelling battle and all that. And uh, it's a nine months of marriage. And August 1st, 56, International Newswire uh, photo of DiMaggio with Lee Mayer where they gave wise inspectors that they were engaged. But DiMaggio biographer Richard Ben Kramer wrote that it was a rumor. And it was started by a guy named Walter Winchell. <laughs> Monroe biographer Donald Spoto claimed that DiMaggio was very close to marrying 1957 Miss America, Mary McKnight. So we're a ladies man at this point. Yeah. And um, who won the crown with a Marilyn Monroe act. But McKnight denied it. And um, he's also linked to Liz Renee, Cleo Moore, Rita Gam, Wileen Dietrich, Gloria DeHaven. And in this period, and later, to Lewis Ray and Morgan Fairchild, but he never publicly confirmed any involvement with anyone. So yeah. he was a ladies' man. Yeah, and the thing is, that, you know, he, he he was well dressed. He cared about his public appearance. He wasn't a slob, you know. And women are attracted to that, no question about it. Would it be fair to say he was Derek Jeter of the time? Uh, yeah. Would that be a fair statement? Or Derek Jeter was the Joe DiMaggio of his time in that sense. Yeah. Uh, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah. yeah. You flipped it the right way. Yeah. Yeah. I said it backwards. 100%. Yeah. But you know what? You, you couldn't quit Marilyn Monroe. So he reentered in Marilyn's life after her marriage to Arthur Miller was ending. And, uh, you know, apparently she was in a psychiatric clinic in 61. And yeah. Got she, her out. I listened to a podcast two weeks ago, man. She was apparently really gross, like hiding dirty plates underneath her bed sheets and just gross, not taking showers and had to go into, and there's, this is tinfoil hat shit that's going on here, but yeah, apparently Marilyn Monroe fell off the deep end. Yeah. And, um, you know, <laughs> yeah, they, they spent time together, but you know, DiMaggio was just alarmed at how Monroe had fallen in with people he felt that were detrimental to her well-being. You know, I mean, just... It, it, he felt like people like Frank Sinatra and people like that just, you know, caused kind of her demise. And even though he was friends with Sinatra after this, they, they, they basically stopped being friends after that. <laughs> You know, <laughs> no, even after they were uh, broken up, he consistently sent her letters. Yeah, and just they, they kept in touch. But then, you know, but you know, August fifth, sixty two, Marilyn Rose found dead, and this just broke Joe DiMaggio's heart. You know, it just broke his heart, and you know, he basically arranged for a funeral, pay for it all. Yeah. He ba- you know, and he didn't want any of Hollywood's elite or members of the Kennedy family attending the funeral, including the president JFK, because he also felt that the Kennedys led to her downfall too. Which that's another story for another time. <laughs> well, that's where we put our tinfoil hats on and really get into some stuff. And we're not a tinfoil hat podcast, right? We're not even trying to go there, but apparently we are with this. Anyway, and so. He had a half dozen red roses delivered to her crypt three times a week for 20 years. 
Loved he, her, man. Yeah, he loved her. He loved that woman. And he refused to talk about her publicly or otherwise exploit the relationship. He never married again. You know, and supposedly his last words, according to his attorney, DiMaggio's attorney, Morris Engelberg, he, you know, DiMaggio's last words were, I'll finally get to see Marilyn. However, you know, Dom, Joe's brother, challenging a version of Joe's final moments in reverse. Because, <laughs> of course, you know. And, of course, you know, Joe DiMaggio did a lot of uh, advertisements. He's a big PR guy, man. Yeah. You know, in the set, you know his biggest thing for, during retirement was being the spokesman for Mr. Coffee, Coffee Makers. Um, I've owned a Mr. Coffee Coffee Maker. I'm sure your family has. I'm sure 90% of our fam- our baseball history family has owned a uh, Mr. Coffee. Yeah, and like you can see, you can, you can still see old uh, commercials of Mr. Coffee with Joe DiMaggio on YouTube, you know. They're there. And, uh, you know, Vincent Marotta, who was the CEO of North American Systems, which manufactured Mr. Coffee, at the time, recruited DiMaggio for the advertising campaign. And they were successful. People remember him. And Murata joked that millions of kids grew up thinking Joe DiMaggio was a famous appliance salesman. But the funny thing is, the ironic thing is, DiMaggio rarely drank coffee because he gave him ulcers. And when he did drink coffee, he preferred Senka Instant Coffee instead of Mr. Coffee Coffee. <laughs> you know, and then he did... Uh, he was a spokesman for Bowery Savings Bank, and he became a key spokesperson for Florida's Cross Keys Village with the retirement community. And then, you know, he did some television work, like he had 10-minute programs on Channel 11 New York in 1952. Yeah, this is back earlier in his career, though. Yeah, I mean, like, well, that, that was the first year, that was his first year of retirement, you know. And yeah. then... You know, he did a segment called Joe DiMaggio's Dugout, Dugout, excuse me, Joe DiMaggio's Dugout on Channel 4 in New York City, which was a weekly film program unrelated to the pre- and post-game shows that he did for the Yankees on Channel 11, and featured instructional lessons and quizzes for young people. I was like, hey, what do you think this player likes? Probably that kind of shit. Yeah. You know, but... They passed away, man. He was a big-time smoker. Yeah. Um... He died in Hollywood, Florida in 1998 for lung cancer and surgery. He was there for 99 days. It's thought they could bail him out. But uh, he returned to his home in Hollywood, Florida on January 19th. Made it a few months and died um, at March 8th at age 84. He was buried March 11th, 1999 at St. Paul, Peter and Paul Roman Catholic Church in uh, San Francisco. Or was interned three months later at Holy Cross Cemetery in Coleman, California. His son also died that year. Yeah, like on August 6th. At age 57. And then, um, Too young. Yeah. His legacy, um, after his death, the New York Times called DiMaggio's 41-56 game hitting streak. 1941-56 game hitting streak. Perhaps the most enduring record in sports. I don't think we'll ever see anybody that'll beat it. No. Or even like come close to fifty, and if somebody does, it'll be when they open up steroids baseball. Right. Um, in an article in seventy six Esquire magazine, sports writer Harry Steen published an all time all star argument starter consisting of five ethnic baseball teams. Joe DiMaggio was the center fielder on his Italian team. Yeah, I can see that. 
And um, according to Genesis, Mary Claire King, in the spring of 1981, DiMaggio babysat her daughter at the San Francisco airport so King could drop her mother off to her flight to Chicago. According to King, if it were not for DiMaggio's kindness, she would have almost certainly missed her own flight that was taking her and her daughter to Washington, D.C., a trip that eventually resulted in King getting her first major grant from the National Institutes of Health and the discovery of breast and ovarian cancer causing. She's a baseball player, but he's helping figure out breast cancer. <laughs> right, yeah. What are we doing here? <laughs> what are we doing here? And then on September 17, 1992, the doors were opened at the Joe DiMaggio Children's Hospital at Memorial Regional Hospital in Hollywood, Florida, for which he raised over $4 million. Yeah. And then I'm going to turn it over to you, Matthew. On um, April 13, 1998, he has given the Sports Legend Award at 13 annual American Sportscaster Association Hall of Fame Awards in New York City. Mm-hmm. And this is going to follow it with a bunch of stuff that is more up your avenue. Okay, Henry Kissinger, the former Secretary of State of all people, and he was also a longtime fan of DiMaggio, made the presentation to the Yankee Great. He gave, you know, and he gave, uh, you know, Kissinger, he gave DiMaggio the Sports Legend Award. And this was. You know, the event was one of DiMaggio's last public appearances before taking ill. And then, you know, I mean, all these honors, like Yankee Stadium's fifth monument was dedicated to DiMaggio on April 25th, 1999. And the West Side Highway, which, you know, it's it's a highway in New York State on Route 9A, was renamed the Joe DiMaggio Highway. And of course, the Yankees during that year, 99, wore number five on their sleeves, you know, on the sleeves of uniforms, and just so many. The 98 Highway is the one that, 98 Highway is the one that leads into uh, Cooperstown, right? I believe so. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And, you know, here's the funny thing DiMaggio's number was also retired by the Florida Marlins, who retired it in honor of their first team president, Carl Bar- Barger. Who died five months before the team took the field for the first time in '93? DiMaggio had been his favorite player, so I guess they, since you know, they did it for Carl, but they also did it for Joe too. Which that's like, you know, like you want to you want to retire his number, even though he never had any connection to the Marlins, but because your first president loved DiMaggio, you did it for him. That's interesting, and. uh you know, they renamed the playground in North Beach, San Francisco's North Beach, um, uh, in North Beach neighborhood, the place which was the place where Joe DiMaggio took up his first, you know, baseball as a boy, and they renamed it the Joe DiMaggio North Beach Playground. And here's here's the thing: 2001, Major League Baseball introduced an online daily fantasy game called Beat the Streak, which we talked about, which you which you talked about. Which required players to pick one or two major league players. Yeah, I saw. I was still been talking about. You know, the goal was to you know pick correctly fifty seven times in a row to beat DiMaggio's record streak. As of August two thousand twenty one, the prize money for beating the streak was five point six million. More than four point five million players had combined to make over a hundred million attempts, but none have e- have reached none had reached even fifty two consecutive hits in the game's history. So, so I used to play that game a lot, and then I 
had lost his damn cell phone and got rid of it. And yeah, uh, me and Russell used to Russell Wago shout out you. Um, but uh, I figured somebody had beat it. I thought somebody had beat it and got a payout. But you can't pick the same player twice mm-hmm. in your 50 street, you know? Yeah. I mean, just, and just so many, you know, the man said so many awards and things named after him. And like, you gotta, you know, the, he, you got to be on a stamp that the postal service, you put him on a stamp. I mean, just this, He's on a stamp with that full series of ball players. Um, I have that set of stamps yeah. tucked away at my parents' house. And of course, you know, the most well known, he was mentioned in the Simon and Garfunkel song, Mrs. Robinson. You know, where have you gone, Joe DiMaggio? A nation turns its lonely eyes to you. Woo, woo, woo. You know. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, he was he was touched by that. You know, among other things. And, of course, he was also mentioned in the Billy Joel song, We Didn't Start the Fire, with so many different so many different people on the fence in that song. If you ever heard that song, it's pretty crazy. You know, just... He's just all over the place, man. I mean, like, Joe DiMaggio is a big... A big... He's still a big uh, name in popular... American popular culture. Now, in my personal library at home which I brought with me as a prop. I have a book that a guy named Dr. Rock Positano wrote called Dinner with DiMaggio, Memories of American Hero. And this is basically a book about Dr. Positano's friendship with Joe DiMaggio during his last years, from like 1990 to 99. And Dr. Positano is a, or he may be retired now, but like he's a foot doctor, you know, podiatrist, and he specialized in non-surgical you know, um, procedures for feet. And DiMaggio, in 1949, he got injured. He injured his heel, and the the surgery didn't go very well. He still had a great amount of pain from his heel, which also kind of led to his retirement in 51. And, Doc, you know, through mutual friends, they met, and um, Doc, uh, Dr. Prostano gave him, like, this, you know, non-surgical advice to you know, help his heal, and it helped them very well. And it helped, you know, it, it, they started their friendship that way. And the whole book is just so interesting because they name drop so many, like, well-known people throughout the book that they meet. But my favorite story about this whole thing, it was like 96, and Joe DiMaggio and Positano, Dr. Postano, they go to this music store in New York City. They walk in, and of course the kids there all recognize Joe DiMaggio. And one guy said, hey, my man, it's Joe D. And all of course, they're going to recognize him. Yeah, and all the kids gather around Joe. And Joe just loves this because in the book, in one of the chapters, the, you know, the Dr. Postano called him the patron saint of kids. Like, he just loved the attention that he got from kids, you know, talking about baseball and they recognized him. Even Joe was in his 80s then. People still, the kids even recognized him, even though they never saw him play baseball. They recognized him as one of the greats and, you know, a popular guy. And so they're all, and Joe's just loving the attention. And this this worker at the music store said, hey, Mr. DiMaggio, come follow me. We have, you know, the, the big band music section from the 40s. You want to check it out. And Joe said, not interested. I'm looking for the rapper Coolio's latest. 
It's called Gangsta Paradise. This is exactly what he said. And one of the kids said, that's the shit, Mr. D. And Joe DiMaggio looks at Dr. Positano and says, what's this fella saying? And, the, and Positano said, he means that's great stuff. Which that's what that's what it means if somebody says that's the shit, you know. And all the kids were like, Yeah, that's great. And he's like and Joe's like, Look, this is for my great granddaughters. And they had a copy of Gangsta Paradise. Joe paid it. He tipped the uh, the worker twenty bucks for helping him get it. They go back Positano and DiMaggio go back in the car and he had Positano drove and Joe sat in the back and he and Joe <coughs> had Dr. Positano play Gangsta Paradise loud in the car. Can you imagine that? Can you Joe DiMaggio <laughs> getting down with Thanks for Paradise? Yeah. Which, by the way, rest in peace, Coolio, because he passed away this year. You know, but still, it's like, can you, that that's just surreal to me. I, that was my favorite. I mean, the whole book is great, but that was my favorite story of the whole book. Just him jamming out to Gangsta Paradise, you know, really loud. <laughs> so I would reckon, it's not a it's not a biography per se. It's, it's just yeah, a story about you know, DiMaggio and Positano's friendship. So the book he's showing me is called Dinner with DiMaggio. Memories of an American Hero. It's um, by Dr. Rock, Rock Postano and John Postano. Yeah, and the four is by Francis Ford Coppola. And um, if you want to find it. But the outro of this episode might be Gangster's Paradise. <laughs> well, somebody wrote a song about Joe DiMaggio in the 40s. You know, Jolton Joe DiMaggio, we want you on your side. If we can find it, we can make that the outro. And you know, like Joe, Joe speaks in the he speaks briefly in the in the song. He's like, you know, they need a hit, so here I go, or something like that, you know. But anyway, I mean, just I feel like that's a great way to end the episode. Just you know, hey, check out Dinner with DiMaggio because it's just a great. Yeah, book. it's a really good story. Yeah, you know, so you most people would not think those two, Joe DiMaggio and Coolio, in the same sense, you know. <laughs> no, absolutely not. Yeah, not before I read this book. I didn't ever thought about it, but still, it was great. But as always, um, I appreciate y'all listening to us. I'm sure Matt does as well. Absolutely. Appreciate you 100%. As always, um, Baseball 101, baseball, baseballhis101 at gmail.com. Yep. Um, I'm on Facebook, Patrick DeVault. He's on there at Matt's Carter and... I mean, this will probably be our last episode of the year, you know. Yeah, it'll be the last uh, episode of the year, and uh, I'll be up. I'll be up in Huntsville in December to record a couple. Okay. Right around Christmas weekend. Um, Sounds good. I think I put a couple of good ones down tonight, Matt. Yeah, I mean, this was this has been a good year all around. I mean, I traveled more this year doing stuff than I did these past two years for obvious reasons. So I, I, I twenty two twenty 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 two has been a good year so far. Yeah. Can't complain about. It. Yeah, I, I got nothing. Well, <laughs> I miss Huntsville, but we're doing good things down here. You know? Right. You started a new job. You, well, you're still the same company. Same company, new opportunities. She's in law school. Right. Talking about my pretty lady that's going to be fucking great winner for me, hopefully one day. <laughs> but, uh, you know, no, so we're doing we're doing good shit, man. We're doing good. And we're always, you know. Hey, give me a high five, man. This podcast is going. We're top 10 in most categories. And we are, in, as I, we both shared on on social media we have been heard in 38 countries in this world that's, that's very impressive i'm very happy about that that's mind-blowing and we're in the top 10 of most shared podcasts and it takes it comes up to y'all to continue doing that for us right you know um, I mean, make sure you subscribe and share and 
make us the top five percent. Absolutely. Yeah. And that way we can actually start making money on this thing, yeah. yeah. And um, but still, you know, it, it, we can't do this out of you guys. You know that. And, and no podcast can be successful without its on. You know, even Joe Rogan can tell you that. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, we appreciate you guys. As always, baseballhs101 at gmail.com. Um, you can find Matthew Carter on Facebook, Patrick DeVault on Facebook. I'm on Twitter at open underscore DeVault, or Twitter underscore, open underscore DeVault. But, um, You're also on Instagram, too, is that. Same thing, yeah. Yeah. Cheesy. But uh, we'll catch you guys next time, man. We really appreciate y'all having listened to us. Yeah, thank you very much, guys. We love y'all. Y'all have a good one. We'll catch y'all next time. The Wiz Kids had won it. Bobby Thompson had done it. And Yogi read the comics all the while. Rock and roll was being born. Marijuana we would scorn. So down on the corner, the national pastime went on trial. We're talking baseball. Klazuski Campanella talking baseball. The man and Bobby Feller, the scooter, the barber, and the nuke. They knew them all from Boston to Dubuque, especially Willie, Mickey, and the Duke. Well, Casey was winning, Hank Aaron was beginning, one Robbie going out, one coming in. Kiner and Midget Goodell, the Thumper and Mel Parnell, and Ike was the only one winning down in Washington. I'm talking baseball, Klazuski Campanella, talking baseball, the man and Bobby Feller, the Scooter, the Barber, and the Duke. They knew them all from Boston to Dubuque, especially Willie, Mickey, and the Duke. Well, he swore he was the Oklahoma kid And Cookie played hooky to go and see the Duke And me, I always loved Willie Mann Those were the days Well, now it's the 80s And Brett is the greatest And Bobby Bonds can play for everyone Rose is at the vet, Rusty again is a Met, and the great Alexander is pitching again in Washington. I'm talking baseball, like Reggie Quees and Barry, talking baseball, Carew and Gaylord Perry, Siva, Garvey, Schmidt, and Vita Blue. If Cooperstown is calling, it's no fluke, they'll be with Willie, Mickey, and the Duke. It was Willie, Nicky and the Duke. Say hey, say hey, say hey. I'm talking with.